This is The New Rite, a podcast for the lost arts, reclaiming the literary holy land from the heathen. This is Matt Pegas. And this is Dan Baltic. And we are back here with another episode, our first episode of 2022, uh, with our first recurring guest, Last Things. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, very good to have you back. Obviously, this is the second collaboration between new right and last things the first one i was unfortunately absent for but i did enjoy uh the conversation you and dan did but i think we wanted to get you back on um a because i you know the first conversation was so good but b i definitely you know had had some of my own things i wanted to to talk to you about so um yeah very very good to have you have you back and this this may seem a little bit like uh repeat or like a step backwards or something based on the conversation you already had with Dan. But um, I just thought maybe we could, I want to talk a little bit more about your work today. I feel like the first interview was a little bit of, of you interviewing Dan about new, right. And maybe this interview informally is us interviewing you about last things. Uh, so I thought maybe just start off by you kind of telling us a little bit about your project, how it came to be. Um, I mean, I can intro it a little bit. You're a, you're a, a YouTube video essayist and a very good one. Uh, some very high production quality uh, and insightful videos. But if you just want to yeah, talk about your project a little bit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, Matt, I mean, I, I did read Dragon Day, so I'm happy to. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm happy to talk about my content, but I hope we can talk about your your book as well. But We will, we will. <laughs> but yeah, so my... my um, my uh, YouTube channel is called Last Things. Um, I, I like to think about it as a um, pervert's guide to cinema for the, the dissident right. Um, I've, I've been described as uh, kind of a right-wing Adam Curtis. So my, my typical mm -hmm. uh, format has kind of been to, to pick a philosophical idea or a philosophical personality um, or some, some subject and try to explain it through the lens of um, a film, a work, a work of film, or, or a television program. Um, I say that as though I'm I'm prolific. I've got really, <laughs> I've got one three part series, and I've got two, um, two you know videos that come in in about uh, under under an hour, and I'm I'm chiseling away at, at my fourth, um, which I was really hoping to get out the door before uh, J.R.R. Tolkien Day last week. So mm. It has to do with with Tolkien and Lewis, but I, I could not make that that deadline. Yeah, that sounds really good. Yeah, yeah, but I, in general, I, I, I guess I do. I try to come at things from a, a dissident right or post-liberal perspective. So, um, I mean, that's probably all that needs to be said as to why the three of us mm -hmm. um, <laughs> are interested <laughs> in conversation. 
For sure. No, I mean, um, yeah, no, the, as I said, the videos are, are great and, uh, you know, it's hard to be super prolific. You know, some of these people will release YouTube videos all the time, but like when you, when I watch your videos, I mean, it's, it's very evident that they're the product of a lot of thought and a lot of work. I mean, they are video essays. This is not you, you know, uh, speaking off the cuff on something it's, you know, these are, these are real fully fledged video essays. So the, the amount of time and work that you put into them definitely, definitely shows and uh, it's interesting you say say adam curtis i mean i'm something of a of a curtis fan i never really like made that uh connection between you and him but yeah i can see i can see that there's a similar sort of editing sensibility i feel because you know when you make these videos you have a real collage of different pictures and sound effects and even music and um it comes together really nicely um i'll be honest i hadn't even checked until somebody told me i was the right wing adam curtis i hadn't even heard about the guy but then i, I went and checked him out and i was like oh yeah okay <laughs> i guess they're right yeah, yeah. no it, yeah. it really fits like i didn't think of it either but now that i'm like remembering the curtis docs i've watched and your videos like there is a similarity in style and in substance yeah and yeah i, I mean i don't mean to i don't mean to no, no shade against uh, Curtis, but I, I do think he consider himself a, a man of the left. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, there, there's there's issues with Curtis. I mean, he not only I mean he's obviously of the left, but also there's a certain meandering quality. Whereas yours are yours are pretty pointed, uh, pretty pointed points of view. Um, and I mean, was the uh, was the distributist somewhat of an influence? I know you've you've done streams with the distributist, but. Um, very much so, honestly. I, um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I <laughs> I'm always giving Dave kudos, I guess, but I, uh, I kind of attribute him to both my my slow, uh, my slow lurch rightward um, mm -hmm. from my from my my shit lib days. He was somebody that that started to take on a lot of the kind of uh, classical lib um, personalities online, and I would I would find that he just kind of bested them. Uh, and he led me to pick up a lot of um, just kind of uh, right-wing political theory and uh, introduced me to Mensch's mold bug and yeah. sent me down the, uh, the the rabbit hole, so to speak. And um, I, I think eventually, um, I think he, he did just kind of inspire me. I felt like I was having uh, enough ideas about videos in my mind that I um, I decided to try my hand at one. But, yeah. yeah. No, that's that's uh, definitely definitely shows as an influence. Yeah, he's great. Obviously, distribute us, and I think probably some of our listeners would be familiar. But it, yeah, it's like a whole I don't know subgenre of YouTube video are these these video essays, and they're um, you know again they're a cut above the speaking off the cuff on a topic. I mean, these are really it's like you know you're basically reading a philosophy paper. Um, but to get into your videos a little bit, I first came across your work, uh, kind of, it's actually some, you know, same place that I met Dan and the same place that this podcast came from. I came across your work first on Justin Murphy's forum. I remember, um, yeah, I was, I think it was, yeah, it was like, Mar you know, April, May of last year, maybe June when you first posted, I would, I actually, it's not your first video essay, but maybe your most, perhaps your most watched, your, your three-parter. Uh, the Boys and the War on the Third Way, which uh, I was immediately sucked into uh, both for the um, production qualities we've talked about, but also just um, how uh, philosophically astute it was, shall we say. Um, 
and I, I I think I commented on the forum like it's uh, the way that you break down the the connections you make between um, I, I would, you know third positionism slash the third way whether or not there's a difference there uh, the connection the way that you sum up uh, you know what that is politically and philosophically which I may ask you to do for our audience in a moment uh, but that and also speaking about art and the state of uh, TV and this particular TV show the boys uh, was was really masterfully done and you know it's these are relevant topics like you know what what is the third position and and defining that is very relevant and also talking about um, how kind of politics influences art and movies and TV and cinema and why uh, more particular um, points of view or even nationalistic points of view may lead to better art. Um, you know, these are these are relevant arguments. Uh, and I, I really honestly can't think of like your video on that is one of the best sum summings up of it I, that I've seen. Um, but not to get too far ahead of ourselves, um, if you don't mind, I ho hopefully not too much of this podcast will be making you rehash things you've already spoken about, but um, it seems like these kind of third way politics you describe in that video are, are pretty much your own, I don't want to speak for you, uh, and kind of the politics that undergird not just that video, but your project in general. So do you want to give a, a quick rundown of, of the third way? Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. And, you know, we can call it, <laughs> I mean, honestly, my, my first my first draft of the video and the script, it was it was called the the, uh, the boys and the war on the third position. The, the challenge with with this and really it's just kind of an insurmountable one is third positionism is something that really un unfortunately just gets um, becomes a synonym for for fascism um, yeah. just as a result of the of the 20th century. So in, in a nutshell, uh, you got first position, which is capitalism, second position, which is communism, and third position, which would be um, typically sort of uh, gov governments which control uh, fascism. Is, and I'm not trying to dodge the bullet because fascism yeah. would fit under the umbrella of third positionism. Mm -hmm. um, but it would be nation states maintaining some level of control over over capitalism. With a, so it's sort of a blending. It has it has socialist economic policies because it's trying to to care for a nation state and a particular people, a particular polis. Um, but it has it has capitalist elements as well, and that it's not it's not entirely you know egalitarian or, or, or redistributive. And a, a lot of it came out of I mean kind of early third position and third way. Um, uh, political and economic theory came out of a lot of Catholic thinkers in Catholic theology. That's speaking of Dave the Distributist. He's certainly the yeah. one that introduced me to writers like G.K. Chesterton and, and Hilaire Belloc. They're two writers mm -hmm. I, I mentioned in the video, and they are um, people that worked to develop it. And I think, if I recall correctly, Third Way is honestly something that Chesterton coined only because of this, this association with fascism. Um, and I think it actually, it's, it's funny that it's, it's so difficult to talk about. You can't really discuss the third position um, without, without being pigeonholed or, or if people know what it means, they're going to, they're, they're going to gasp and, <laughs> and have a sharp impact. Right, right. Well, I think in the third part of, of the boys in the war on the third way, uh, you sum up really well how 
for whatever reason, uh, we've kind of been conditioned to think of anything that dares to be both anti-communist and also anti-capitalist or anti-modernity, anti-American you know, capitalist hegemony, however you want to put it. There, there's very much a conditioning where we're, we're led to think and, you know, anything uh, that stands against those two things, anything that speaks of getting really gets of getting in touch back with any sort of rootedness or, or national culture in, in a deeper way than, you know, obviously there are kind of national capitalists in the United States who are considered a little differently. But if you any anywhere to the right of that in terms of focusing on a sort of rootedness uh, immediately in a very cartoonish way, and a lot of it is thanks to Hollywood and shows like The Boys, evidently. Uh, the the image of of Nazis is immediately you know presented as like that's what that's what lies around the corner. Yes, um, but I think that I, I would say that part of the I guess the tragedy of the boys is I mean you're at the, the the polarity I guess the Overton windows that we're allowed to kind of exist under I, I hesitate to call it a dialectic because I don't really think there's ever any any synthesis is on, on the one the absolute good under sort of our 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 thought regime is is just sort of radical individualism and, and freedom. And the opposite, on the opposite end of that spectrum, the antithesis of that is simply the, the Nazi. Um, yeah. And the tragedy of the boys was, at least throughout season one, I thought it did a, a fantastic job of just lampooning and tearing to shreds the image of um, radical individualism. I mean, mm. for those of you, I mean, we don't have to rehash the whole show, but it's basically just a, a parody of Marvel movies and comic book culture. And the real heart and soul of the series is this character, Homelander, who's this, um, I think this brutal satire, he's sort of a hybrid of Captain America and Superman, except instead of being this, this sort of patriotic, homegrown, um, like corn-fed Iowa, like blue-blooded uh, heroic figure, he's just this this kind of, pathologically narcissistic sociopath who's obsessed with his his social media presence and um and is a is a complete and florid kind of neurotic which i think mm -hmm. gives us a much more accurate portrait of the kind of human beings that evolve out of this wholehearted embracing of a kind of radical individualism and it did, it did, I think it was a, an incredibly smart show and it did an incredibly beautiful job of, I just think, you know, tearing down and like, thank, like, thank God, finally, hallelujah, somebody um, satirized <laughs> the, the dark yeah. of, of cinema that we're living through. And then in, it, it's a, but however, it's a bit of a, a bait and switch because what happens in season two, not to be too many spoilers, but essentially there's just, uh, if you're allowed to sort of, um, sneer at this sort of uh capitalist radical individualism the villain of the series is is quickly um and again well not and very subtly transformed to be a figure of of a nazi and and right a nazi super a nazi super villain reveals themselves and not even just that just a kind of the most ham-fisted cartoonish yeah nazi that i've ever seen um outside of like a mel brooks film and it's just um i mean that's the reason why i was i was originally planning on doing i think one um one video just in praise of the show and i was like oh thank thank god somebody had the balls to finally um you know 
step on the cake, yeah. so to speak. And then uh, season two came out, and I was I said, oh, I'm gonna I can't <laughs> tear the show. Up. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, did it, it to me. It's a shame that the show went down the tubes, but it makes your video essay kind of more more dynamic. Where there's you know you you praise it to a point, and then it also becomes a critique of, and it's because it's not just the boys. It's 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 you know endemic in the culture, both in Hollywood, but also in um, the political rhetoric of the times, where it's always this notion that there's um, you know fascists behind things, or that. You know, we have you have American capitalism, which has all its excesses and people are suffering because of it. But really what's behind that is some kind of fascistic white male notion, uh, which, you know, I try to be nuanced about these things. I, obviously, you uh, last things are, are pretty nuanced about this. Like, you know, you, you take a certain amount of influence from certain left wing thinkers in terms of economics. But uh, like that kind of leftism where you're finding, you know, essentially Nazis behind every corner. Um, I feel pretty confident is just saying it's entirely fictitious and basically a myth, um, a politically you know useful myth to the powers that be, uh, to always, you know, to always to say that there's a, that there's always a threat of, of this kind of um, you know World War Two type of scenario happening if people. Uh, yeah, yeah. I guess if, if if we if we attempt to define our our identities using any any sort of uh, any people or history uh, or culture (laughs) yeah it is it just leads to to super super powered nazis um yeah yeah you know i've and and it's i I think it's increasingly harder and harder to sell which i guess is maybe a bit of a white pill or some something that's that's positive i doubt yeah too many people found the um, Stormfront, the the Nazi character, to be uh, frightening or believable, or um, or I guess cleverly cleverly deployed. Yeah, well, was the I show think that's a white pill? But also, yeah. it's a relevant point that when people make Nazis and you know those type of characters as cardboard villains, it's bad art. So. The boys, as you note, started out very, very interesting because it was dynamic and it was asking, you know, intelligent questions. But then when you, uh, you know, resource to cardboard villains for, you know, ideological reasons, but also out of laziness, it Mm -hmm. creates a show that is just not as, you know, good as it could be artistically to say nothing of the political message. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I I would I would second that everything Dan <laughs> Dan <laughs> yeah but I, I I mean I imagine you know I did not hear a lot of other people react to it but I I imagine that there had to be people other than me that felt their their intelligence to be kind of insulted by the- yeah I mean yeah. even if even people on the other side of the aisle to us politically you would think would find that to be a very cardboard you know portrayal of in con- you know and i have to be cards up i have not seen the boys based on your recommendation uh it sounds like the first season is very much worth watching but in any case it sounds like the first season you know regardless of where one stands politically it sounds like the first season had a lot more to offer it was a lot less of a sort of straw man cardboard villain kind of setup um and yet it, it, there is this uh yeah you could call it the tragedy of the boys because it it sounds like uh and i'm gonna loop this in with your your unique you know political perspective as as an advocate of of the third way 
Um, basically, my, again, not having seen the show, I now plan to watch it, but the first season, it seems like it was parodying, sat, uh, you know, it was a satire of the effects of liberalism and liberalism writ large, liberalism in, you know, in the more politically serious sense of, of both economic liberalism, capitalism, as well as social liberalism. Um, it seems like it was a general satire of that, uh, which the, the power of that is that there are people on the left side of the aisle who can see something in that, um, that, you know, that they, that they can understand and that makes sense to them. But there's also people on the right who can see something in it. And from those two perspectives together is where you, you know, you, you get something like a, a third way type position. And yeah, lo and behold, it doesn't have to be fascism. All it has to be is a simple acknowledgement that both all, it, all the only starting point is an acknowledgement that both um, unfettered capitalism and also unfettered social liberalism have kind of wreaked havoc on society and in our lives and have led to this atomized situation. Very basic, and I would even say very obvious uh, observation to make about the state uh, of the West. And, you know, if, if enough people make that reservation, you know, make that observation uh, on either side of the aisle, you know, there, there, there could be a possibility for a real, uh, you know, third way type political movement. Now, I happen to be a little bit blackpilled about the prospects of that, given the current climate of extreme polarization, uh, where again, there's these narrative, uh, you know, th these narrative devices put in by uh, unsavory powers that be where it's like, oh, you know, you, you can't drift at all towards the, the right socially, uh, or, you know, it's going to be fascism, or even on the other side, to an extent, you know, you can't, you can't drift at all towards the left economically, or it's going to be common, you know, it's a very bad and polarized time for that. So I'm a little blackpilled about the real prospects. But, you know, you would think, given the state of things, um, that, that there really would be a, a future for the for the third way. I've heard, uh, I forget where I, I, I know I'm, I'm quoting somebody or paraphrasing somebody, but I've, I've, I've heard it said that that often what sort of conservative or, or right leaning people want, truly, fundamentally, and primarily is um, more than any kind of right-wing conservative or you know libertarian economics is really so right-wing social values but under yeah. you know under neoliberalism all you really get is more liberal economic policy and what left-leaning people want even more than they want kind of left-leaning this is in general broadly yeah you know, yeah middle america what they want more than uh liberal social values is liberal economic policy but all right. you end up getting is liberal so like you know an increased hedonism and increased sort of permissiveness to the culture and so neither side really fully ultimately winds up getting what they want or what they i mean what they um what they yeah right like the polls you know routinely show that there's the most support for a third way type party for oh yeah socially conservative yeah. but uh, more economically liberal party and it's just it's astounding that we've never been offered that at least not recently i mean you could argue that huey long in a sense tried to but uh yeah i know, think trump there. tried to but but maybe didn't succeed and who knows how how sincere he was uh, but right no one yeah, yeah in retrospect. that i don't i don't think i have a hard opinion on it but um but yeah, I mean, it would really just be giving, yeah, <laughs> giving both sides what they what they what they fundamentally want at, at the end of the day. Um, but no, it's very difficult and challenging to to have these conversations with anybody. I mean, 
God forbid you mention third positionism and you Google it because it's just, I mean, I, I decided to edit it back to third way because I, I, I you know, in just doing research for my video, you know, third yeah. positionism, third position in Google gives you, you know, you're reading about Adolf Hitler and about two. <laughs> yeah. You know, because that's the only end result of any kind of, um, <laughs> <laughs> between unchecked um liberalism and, and and communism um so it's yeah a challenge. it's a challenge you know one thing i've thought about for because i always encounter this i don't even know what words to use if i'm trying to have a conversation with a normie and this would be a noble project for new right yeah anybody on our side of things do you guys know what, like the devil's dictionary is no it's, no, a, it's, a, it's a satirical dictionary written by Ambrose Bierce was like a Civil War soldier. It just has like, it, it's a dictionary, but every every word, every definition is actually just kind of satirical and biting. So, um, uh, yeah, I'm looking at it's kind of like Urban Dictionary a little bit, or like, but predating that. Yeah, it's it's like, but I would yeah. like because one of the challenges that um, dissidents had is anybody that Google's any term. Um, that we use is just going to get rational wiki or a buzzfeed article that explains this is um this is nazi signaling or this is um yeah something like that but to create something and then try to actually boost it where you had like the devil's dictionary of you know like um what is that's a great idea is, if somebody could google third positionist and it just looks up like somebody who seeks to define themselves outside of market forces politically like gosh i mean i'm gonna earmark that as something to maybe do i mean sure. and maybe we could all help i don't know like because th there used to be something called like yeah and you you're right you look it up you get rational wiki you get various low rent news articles that explain how everything is ultimately fascism and, but and there, on the other side, there used to be, I think, something called like Imperium Wiki. Maybe it's still like this. You have kind of more like Wignat types who who make their own versions of this that don't really really help that much at the end of the day. Um, but is there you know room for a kind of a more moderate slash just like more more objective and like less with less of an agenda, just trying to give a a more honest account of of the different you know, the different currents in sort of dissident thought, shall we say. I think that... I have two angles on it, too. I would love it if people just gave, like, more humorous and honest and sane definitions. I also just, like... I, I would always notice this, that I was just getting liberal definitions of my terms when I Google stuff, but, like, I would love an etymological study of certain... Like, I just... I love based. I love based. Mm -hmm. I, just the term. It's yeah. just so yeah. awesome. But like, where did it? Where did it pop up? Like, can anybody track down the first? Wait, I like meme when it got in when it became a meme. Like, when did it first like enter into like the dissident space as a as a term? If I'm not mistaken, it's from a Lil B song, like a, a rap, like a rapper, yeah, <laughs> which uh, you know is is ironic. Uh, I bet perhaps. Um, it's hard I mean, to know whatever like, what, what, what like to, to yeah. I guess you know put a timestamp on something, but it would be wonderful yeah. if somebody had just sort of like the history of. Based. I mean, there's knowyourmeme.com, but I don't know if there's an uh, uh, an article on based. I think what's interesting, and not to get too much on a sidetrack about this, but I think what's interesting about based is that yes, I think it's from that little B song, um, but uh, but at the same time, it it sounds like what 
the, the way it's used by the dissident sphere um, also like makes sense. It's like base. It's rooted. It's you know. It's like based in reality yeah. essentially. Yeah. So I think that's why it exploded. I think a few people are like, "Haha, this song is funny." Wouldn't it be funny to say this about like dissident right types? Yeah. But I think that it really exploded because it seems to. So you could, you know, from like a linguistic perspective, you could argue that you know it maybe the idea was from the the little B song, but at the same time, it kind of grew to mean you know yeah. based in reality. That's essentially what it does mean now. Um, but yeah, no, I bored, think... bored right wing autist like philologists sitting around yeah which there there are many of is my impression you know th these kinds oh, okay. of intellectual pursuits are not uncommon among kind of people in our sphere like that kind of more autistic type stuff you and i don't mean that in a bad way of our universe the what you need scholars yeah no there's like so many of them and also like regular scholars evidently if you know listen to like baps podcasts sure. and whatnot all the time it's like such and such dissident uh academic who is you know under a false name i mean they're they're out there but uh to to pull us back on track a little bit um the other thing i wanted to ask in regard to your the boys series um another thing to unpack you know you kind of talked about third way politics um but another really memorable part of that video series is just want to kind of rehash you know what what is it about kind of cultural particularity uh potentially you know a third way type regime that that you think would would lead to to greater art i mean in your video you talk about like italian neorealism as an example of a very culturally rooted uh artistic tradition if you just want to touch on that briefly because i think it's yeah no and you know i was i was thinking about it before we we went live because i i, I wish i had a, a holistic and totalizing theory behind behind this and maybe maybe the three of us can like you know patch it together right now but but yeah i guess Matt, the point that i make in in the video is i mean i'm i am a kind of a, a film snob i'm like a, a a stereotypical like film studies major from a, like a liberal arts college like mm -hmm. a criterion connect collection adorned yeah. walls and i'll you know i'll geek out about you know french new wave and then italian neorealism or german expressionism and and i you know i i guess i I kind of treat it the way a lot of people treat cuisine. You know, there is just these kind of unique tastes, sort of unique aesthetic motifs that run alongside um, nations. And um, that particularly, I, I guess that's probably not so much the case nowadays, although I still think there's still like a really strong Korean, national Korean. Yeah. Going. That's basically the only movies I, I bother watching today but um but in general you know the heyday was was really the 1960s um and uh, you know i guess what i allude to in the video is that you need a certain um a certain kind of national pride or national patriotism and to 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 have a, an aesthetic um and, and the, these these differences and these kind of beautiful um you know genuine authentic diversity of of cinema is something that's just gotten more and more kind of homogenized and turned into gray goo you know especially mm -hmm. you know cape shit the rise of cape shit culture i can't you know I, I but at the same time i can't um i can't say that this is the you know this is the formula for decent cinema i mean third went like third positionist countries certainly fail on any number of levels 
you know, economically, morally, and aesthetically, you know, obviously, <laughs> like Mussolini had crappy propaganda films. And so I don't think it's any guarantor. Right. I have to say that, you know, sometimes, like, I guess there's, there's two, there's maybe two kind of categories. There's, I guess, place movies that kind of stick to a certain place, like Italian cinema or, you know, German cinema, Japanese cinema. And then there's also things in, that are just kind of rooted to a particular, particular time, you know, like I can't, I certainly can't think of a, a, a movie like Back to the Future, which I think I touch on briefly in my, in my video is, I don't think it's something that's going to make it into the Criterion collection. Um, that's certainly a, a movie that was produced when we were well on our way to, to kind of a globalized cinema, but it's, it's a great movie and I have, I have right. a lot, a lot yeah. of promise for it. And um, I don't, and, but I, I do think that it does sort of hit on just sort of 1980s Americana and a lot of the, the things that's something like Stranger Things is, is playing on the nostalgia for. So, I, I mean, I can yes. really find movies that don't adhere to some sort of um, patriotism that I can, I'm capable of admiring. Um, but I, I, I do just look at the kind of global cinema and global television of today. And I think what it makes me immediately hungry for is just, you know, get like an actual subject rooted to a particular time and a particular place. Yeah. Trying to say something to me as opposed to sell something to me. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't want to, obviously on this podcast, you know, we love our sort of right-wing artists, filmmakers, writers, but like it, the point isn't simply, oh, uh, you know, right, right-wing leaning, right-leaning people make better art. That's not necessarily the point because with a lot of the filmmakers uh, that you mentioned, I mean, um, I don't even know, I probably don't know nearly as much about it as you, but like those Italian neo-realists, certainly um, the American sort of new Hollywood filmmakers who you do praise in the movie in, uh, in your in your video um as being another example of this you know the even like the george lucas's of the world maybe not the newer star wars's but you know the older uh um, you you know in this perhaps i don't know if you mentioned spielberg by name but you know you you mentioned even them even even what a lot of people would see as you know filmmakers who later sort of led to where we are now nevertheless there is something you know, you know, rooted in, in of a particular time and place about you know New Hollywood. Even my point is, those people are not right wing people at all. Um, in as far as they're patriotic, it's you know they they, they you know they, a lot of in the case of, of of New New Hollywood, a lot of them you know anti very anti Vietnam War. You know, you don't need to be jingoistic to make uh, good art by a long shot. But it's 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 less even about what you profess as just the simple rootedness of you know the filmmakers even just like the life of the filmmaker who made the film it's like it's like those societies produce better artists not that people who advocate the third way make better art or anything but societies that maintain some degree of rootedness yeah i mean place. i think in some ways like yeah. the uh, like the generation under the influence the like 60s 70s era american auteur filmmakers are the biggest kind of fly in my ointment because i think those guys were I'm thinking of films like Easy Rider or, you know, anything that yeah. early Jack Nicholson films, um, those are kind of simultaneously kind of anti-American, American cinema. Well, um, they are. They, they, yeah, they, yeah. Is authenticity. 
it's not about patriotism or necessarily culture or root. Well, it is about culture and rootedness. But like, for instance, I recently watched one of, uh, you know, Russia has been making a lot of films recently, blockbusters. And, you know, they're kind of in this, like, you know, from the Russian perspective uh, during World War Two. And like because Russia has a lot of money now, they're they're really pretty good. The production value, but it's it's shit. It's just it's you know it's, it is patriotic, but it's 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 poorly written because it's inauthentic. It's like it's propaganda. So patriotism is good. It's great, but what you what we really need to produce good art, I think, is authenticity. And so that is like you are being true to the culture that it came from, the place that it came from. And so I think that is why Easy Rider is a fly in your ointment, because, yeah, it's not patriotic, but it is authentic. Yeah. It is an authentic portrayal of the culture at that moment. And it's not bullshitting you. That's well said, Dan. And it's funny, too. I mean, I think what um, what we also need is the thing that all of those directors had like Sam Altman, all of those guys, uh, Dennis Hopper, is they just had <laughs> maverick millionaires that would write a check. You know, they had the guys that were just like, I don't know what the kids are into these days, but this guy seems like he's the, he's it. And here, like, go make, go, go run and make your movie, man. Oh, I, absolutely. The, you know, the, the, the age of the auteur, you know, uh, was very real in, Dan, you know, 70s Dan Hollywood. We're talking a lot about the challenges that that faced you guys or anybody that's that's kind of writing from a, you know, particularly right wing or even just kind of a, a unapologetically ma masculine point of view in the in the publishing industry. But, uh, you know, a subject that they came on, I was on Millennial Woes um, mm -hmm. Millennial this year. And, and one thing that, that we wound up talking about was just like the tragedy, this parallels the tragedy of literature right now but just just think about all of the amazing movies that will never get made about the the absurd inflection point of where we are at culturally and this is the, this ties back to the tragedy of the boys because i think the boys in many ways came came as close as anything to um yeah putting its finger on the button of a lot of that bullshit but there's just you know there's never there's never going to be a movie where you're just like, oh yeah, that's how that's that that movie just explains exactly how like fake and gay the twenty teens were. Like it's just never gonna happen. Yeah. Andrew Thiel, if you're listening, we need money to make <laughs> movies. <laughs> Peter. No, I mean look, Hello. I'm <laughs> I in zero HP Lovecraft screenplay and I'm guaranteed the man's probably got like a shoebox full of them being produced. I don't care if it's in some like weird warehouse in Eastern Europe. Somebody's got to be producing a zero HP Lovecraft film. You know? Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, we we were gonna ask sort of about that, like, um, obviously. Well, I was gonna kind of comment, like, obviously, you do a really good job in your videos and uh, on this podcast. Now, you know, we're talking about it. You know, why movies today basically suck? Why TV, you know, basically sucks? Art, you know, is if there's a downward trend in quality but obviously you know you're still talking about some of this stuff it's a lot of it still brings up interesting points at least whether it's the boys or um i also really like your video on black mirror which maybe we'll get into but uh yeah i guess i guess two-pronged uh 
question. I mean, do you have that much hope? Oh, let's just, rather than keeping it, rather than being broad, I'll just say for movies, I mean, do you have much hope that, you know, things things could improve for, for movies in the United States moving forward? And I guess along with that, like, what are, what are, so what are some of the better things you've seen, I'll say movies and TV over the past few years, if there's anything that even comes to mind? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> You know, well, I mean, I get the short answer to that question is, is sadly no. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, even if I find something good, and I guess this is this is something I touch on with, um, with both the boys video and the Black Mirror episode is even, and this is, I think, I, I, I try to, I, I write and I talk a lot about horror movies. And I think that in some, in a very strange, I guess, kind of counterintuitive, maybe paradoxical way, the most horrifying thing that I see in any kind of intellectual property nowadays is, even if something does catch me, even if I do think something is resonating with me, I'm, I, I, I'm waiting for it to shift leftward in some way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even if I, I can't even... Um, the, the, the moment I find myself getting caught up in a show or a TV, I'm like, what, like, when is the sequel going to come out? And like, are there, they're, yeah. they're going to like, I, I'm going to get excited about this. And there's, there's episode seven is going to introduce some character. That's just obviously whatever the, that char- type of character was supposed to be like, like a Montana sheriff as a black woman or something <laughs> the, the, yeah yeah something is gonna come and spoil yeah my uh my meal that I'm, yeah uh, yeah like i think you were mentioning wheel of time like fantasy series yeah, yeah. and on twitter and like yeah the multiracial casting you know it's you know obviously um you know intentionally done to fulfill political ends and not artistic ends and I mean, it's not to say you can't have fantasy movies with, you know, a multiracial cast, but when it's done solely for that reason, yes. it's just, you know, it's lazy and it's, it's boring. Yep. That and your Guillermo del Toro style villain coming in, which sort of happens in the boys, except surprise, she's a female. Anyway. Yes. Uh, I mean, to not be overly cynical. I mean, I think, um, like I said, Korea has, has some great stuff. I thought Parasite was an excellent movie. Yeah. Um, did, wait, just to butt in, I mean, um, I'm curious what your answer is here. Did you see uh, Squid Game? I did, yeah, yeah. And I thought see, it was, um, yeah, it was trying to be a, a Bung Chun uh, film. Uh, yeah. I'm, I, thought, I, I, I thought it was going to be an executive producer on it. <laughs> right. Well, here's the thing. I'm not going to overly heap praise on the Squid Game, um, but I'll say this. For a show that everyone was watching, I mean, normally when everyone's watching something, it's either bad or like good but stupid i mean like the last couple of times that it happened with a netflix show was stranger things and um tiger king stranger things you know i do keep up with stranger things because you know for whatever reason but i i don't think i think it's very derivative tiger king was entertaining but pretty dumb of all of those three shows i just mentioned the like the meme netflix shows um squid game is i think by far the best i think there was some sort of redemptive quality there and when you said that korea kind of had a thing going um it reminded me a bit of that. Like, that, there is more, you know, Squid Game is not very woke at all, and it, it is kind of rooted in this new Korean thing that's going on. And, uh, look, I, I don't want to, like, sidetrack us about Squid Game too much. I just, I was curious what your thoughts were, because I thought that it was a lot better than I was expecting. 
Yeah, yeah. No, it was it was good. It was um, it, I, I, but again, it um, it just made me kind of want to watch um, Paramount host. And I yeah. do um, I re- I did a recently I did a um, guest spot on on Tyler Hamilton's channel where we did a deep dive on host, um, which is uh, interesting. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that um, I think that part of Korea is still, I guess, angry enough at America and therefore sort of imperial culture that they managed to, you know, poke uh, poke the bear with a stick every now and again. Yeah, art. I, I think now, so. What, and um, what do you think about a couple of the more recently produced movies that some have said are right wing or based, and uh, like for instance, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Hmm. or the king and i love both of those movies and i realize that they both pass and fail your test of rootedness hmm. because once upon a time in hollywood is quite rooted to the you know era the you know 70s 60s when it, it was made uh when it was set mm-hmm. but you know obviously it's, it's not of the moment today and the king of course uh that's you know king henry v so that's at the end of the Hundred Years' War, so that's definitely not today. And it occurs to me, even as I'm saying this, that it may be the case that actual authenticity cannot be achieved in movies that are made today because you will get canceled if you try to make an authentic movie based uh, with today as its setting. But you can do it from in previous eras. Yeah, that's it's it's, it's that's a great question, Dan, and I will answer that. It, it, it I guess it part of it kind of ties back to um, mentioning Ranger things. There's, I mean, we're all literature guys. I don't know if ever if you guys ever read like William Gaddis's The Recognitions. Mm-hmm. About a a great forger, a, a painting forger, a guy who who does facsimiles of masterpieces. So so much so that they. Um, they can't actually be told apart. Like he can do a Goya painting and it looks exactly like Goya. And so he's very sought after by, you know, art, um, <laughs> art outlaw. But that, that's sort of, that. it's one thing that's, I guess, a bit tragic is the, the, the best that we can hope for aesthetically is these perfectly, perfect facsimiles of a bygone. Mm-hmm. bygone. Like, oh, you got, you just crushed 80s, aesthetics but it is the, yeah it is the simulacrum of an 80s movie um you just and, crashed and, such renaissance aesthetics it's like <laughs> yeah it's like watching video home movies of you and an old girlfriend it's not it's not like yeah. uh, immediate it's not um you can't celebrate it in the same way you know yeah uh, quentin tarantino is uh, he I, I don't know what to do with him because he's obviously he's obviously a, a master, but he I don't know if you guys ever followed Joel Davis. I, I would love to to do a stream with Joel Davis on um, Tarantino. He apparently has this concept. I'm not sure if he developed it in his his journal firstness or if he has videos on it, but I've heard him kind of talk obliquely about it called um, ontological coolness and hmm, describing the um. The characters and the protagonists of Tarantino films as as capable of achieving this authenticity through this kind of attached coolness. Um, 
it's probably obvious, you know, you, I'm sure you have characters springing to mind. Um, and I wouldn't deny that. I'm really curious and interested to, to hear Joel develop that more. And I, I can't um, deny that Tarantino is, you know, probably one of the three greatest living filmmakers. But I guess the alternative view, I guess the the the, the dissident right critique of Tarantino, and I, I guess I can somewhat see this and I somewhat agree to it agree on this even though i'm not like i'm not a big racialist guy like that's not my camp of the dissident right at all but yeah there is a component of tarantino's movies that often contains i guess a certain racialized violence um you know you if we're talking about the cartoonishness of the nazi in um right it, we, yeah. the, the nazi in the boys then it brings to mind leonardo the, the cartoonishness of leonardo DiCaprio's southern plantation owner the i guess sort of cartoonish revenge of the glorious bastards against the the nazi and yeah for sure and there, Django. yeah, yeah. there seems to be this uh, and again i like i i I, I hate talking about it. It's not even something that necessarily like riles me up, but there does seem to be this preoccupation. I don't think that Tarantino knows really what to do with his own whiteness, if that makes sense. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, no, because I, I I like Tarantino a lot, but yeah, I, what you say, I don't know what to do with him. I know what you mean, because I don't really know quite how to regard some of that stuff either. He does it in a way that's a, that somehow, I guess because he is such a good filmmaker and the violence is frankly very entertaining, no matter, you know, Inglorious Bastards, Django, whatever, that like I, it's easier for me to stomach than it is in a lot of other things. But in some ways, he's actually a progenitor of some of the some of the worst instincts that we now see. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. The first thing I've heard said about um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and it was it was wonderful. It was a great movie. Like, I yeah. needed it. You get you occasionally just get these extinction bursts of great cinema. Oh, and I definitely think I Once think Upon a Time in Hollywood is, yeah, but, um, almost self-consciously an extinction burst, but go on. <laughs> um, it's, uh, I read I read this somewhere. Again, I'm paraphrasing some, somebody or something. Some, uh, someone else, but they said that the two characters, uh, the Brad Pitt character and the DiCaprio character, DiCaprio character is someone who's seeking um, auth seeking authenticity through artifice, and the Brad Pitt character is seeking artifice, is becoming artifice through his authenticity. You know, they have yeah. strange um, polar trajectories because you have just like a true a true blue-blooded cowboy in brad pitt and you have this actor who's desperately attempting to kind of have that um that yeah. quality and i think that mm -hmm. said about all of his movies like they're simultaneously like playing with genre and cliche and um pulp and yet transcending that at the same time so it makes yeah it really no that's a very good point um and i guess i can't so i don't know how to talk about the politics of the movie either um yeah no no i hear what you're saying 
Sorry, I don't mean to sidetrack us, but... No, I'm glad to talk about Tarantino. I think we, Dan and I have, I don't know, I've, I've kind of wanted to, to have the Tarantino conversation on this podcast for a while, and I, it'll probably continue in other episodes, because he's definitely oh, sure. relevant. Um, just to go back, before we move on to, like, the next question or whatever, uh, uh, I, I did think you made a really interesting point. I mean, two of my, I, I've seen most of your video essays at this point, maybe all of them, actually, uh, but my favorite ones are the one on the boys that we've talked about, and also your... Um, essay on black mirror what you call the scariest episode of black mirror you ever saw which is the um abominable uh star trek sort of based one and you bring up a really interesting point that like you get a lot of mileage out of talking about the boys and talking about black mirror which both of them are are flawed shows um but the flaw almost becomes like a meta narrative about the film which is like when as you said when is it going to go woke um and uh yeah, obviously it happens with the boys and uh and your your video on black mirror i don't want to spoil this video because you do a really good job of kind of building to your point what's that you can it's fine don't worry about it but it's such a yeah it is it is it is a point of equality that i that i want to make it i mean i, th- I think a lot of people have seen the show black mirror i'm certainly a fan of the earlier stuff and will probably continue to watch the shittier stuff that's coming out uh just out of habit but um basically it's a show that started uh, as this kind of much darker Twilight Zone-esque anthology series, mostly, you know, criticizing um, modern man's relation to technology and doing so in a really, uh, really compelling and frankly, very disturbing way, uh, including the second episode, which you talk a lot about. Um, what's that one called? It's like 15 million merits. 15 million merits. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and, and rehash that whole episode. Some of our audience will probably have seen it. Uh, you know, that being a really good example uh, um, of, of a great episode involving basically, to, to, to sum it up really briefly, um, someone in a sort of totalitarian, technologically totalitarian society ultimately getting completely sort of co-opted, you know, trying to rebel, but then even having that rebellion sort of co-opted and turned into yet another commercial product. Uh, is the sort of abstract of what happens that episode. And then your point in um, this, in your video, the scariest episode of Black Mirror I ever saw is basically that that more or less happened to Black Mirror itself. Uh, that originally there was more sort of revolutionary potential that, that this was a show that was actually um, touching some uncomfortable spots in the culture. And then it got bought by Netflix, which is <laughs> never a good thing. Um, and... It's not simply that it went woke, but in this episode uh, that is basically, uh, uh, you know, sort of Star Trek inspired, so to speak. Um, again, you know, people should, people should just go watch the video. I'm not going to take yeah, all the time episode, to, to. I think the, 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 where yeah. the real sea change occurs, the name of that episode is the USS Callister, where it's just, um, you know, it was never a show that and wore any form of politics on its sleeve. And then it just suddenly became um, became propaganda. It really did. It, it was. Um, yeah lacked and it was desaturated of its of its horror which i think is the most horrifying thing and um that's i guess you know that's why it's hard for me to answer your earlier question of just you know good films good um (laughs) good good movies good tv shows because you you are waiting for this um this form of of culture jamming and it's it's hard for me to, to to tell how i mean i think i guess it's certainly deliberate but on there are so many different levels on which it functions as well, because now, like, if I try to have a, like, if I want to talk to a coworker about the boys and I, and they're like, Oh, do you watch the boys? And if I say, yeah, I like the boys, 
Well, did, am, am I agreeing to the fact that Nazism is the greatest threat to um, human flourishing in the world? Mm -hmm. Or am I, am, I, am I acknowledging the brilliant satire of cape shit? You know? It, 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 yeah. And the same is true of Black Mirror. I think that you could, um, you know, easily guess by somebody's um <laughs> somebody admiring black mirror that they have a pretty dark and nihilistic take on technology and now you, you probably just assume that they're that they're that they're they're watching. just another netflix watcher the, the real horror <laughs> is that this is something that happens within intellectual properties i mean i think like it's funny yeah i would love to do it it's i think it's probably been commented on to death although i'd love to do a video on it of um I was I used to be like the lone defender of the British office. But yeah. the, British, the difference between the British office and the American office, which always offended me, but this is at least two, I think, very distinct products. Um, is it, it, it the off the British office really felt like every office job I'd ever had. And the protagonist mm -hmm. is um unlikely to get the girl and does not have a lantern jaw, and there is this discomfort this it, 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 you don't want to be in the office and it has the sort of a tragedy of office life and then you have the american office which is that the fun like the most exciting like the, the most exciting fun environment on the planet uh, yeah it's like people's comfort show of choice everyone's always like i want to i wish i lived in the office i wish i you know like that it's like you hear that all the time yeah but i think the way that that would that i mean that was handled you know, it became Americanized and it, oh, yeah, that's a, yeah. they give, they, they, they make Ed um, Krasinski um, the, the kind of the underdog who's not an Right. Oh man. I could fucking talk about the, I mean, maybe I'm not alone in this. I could talk about the office and I, you know, by the way, I, I may, I may like the American office more than you. I'm like, not all my opinions are negative, but my, my God, I mean, we could do a whole nother show on that like uh not not necessarily saying we should but i, I think that it has I, I it has merit but i but i guess what i'm what i'm pointing to is there's this significance that i think the british office what like black mirror like the boys is just something that cut too close to the bone at a type of sadness that is a a a direct result of a kind of corporate um <laughs> Like yeah, no liberal uh, cultural life, and if it, it, the the minute you observe that, what like just start counting down to the culture jamming, and it's being it's become yeah, it's, it's this it's it's algorithmic because the the speed and the subtlety and the nuance is just accelerating to the point where I'm not going to be able to catch it, and I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be a shit lib again because I won't notice. The show yeah. is completely no. like switched on me. <laughs> yeah, I, I I hear I hear what you're saying, and I, I never thought of it in regard to the office, but that that makes sense. The thing I was gonna say about the office, and this is to change the subject a little bit, but I'm probably gonna unceremoniously use it as a transition to another thing we want to talk about today. Um, is I think that the office, the American office, is uh, probably the best example of neo sincerity mm. on TV. I, not 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 in general obviously it's kind of neo sincerity you have it neo sincerity very much a, a very much a 2000s thing in america you have it with the kind of the indie rock like the arcade fire type of bands of that time and uh and you definitely have it with writers like david eggers and david foster wallace which is the 
topic I'm probably going to jump to in a yes. second. But but I think that the, I never I never this never really occurred to me um, about The Office when I was like originally watching it when it was coming out. But I rewatched some of it recently, and I was like, oh my god, this was like so of the of the moment. It was so. So it's that arcade fire aesthetic, that David Foster Wallace aesthetic, neo sincerity, where the the message is all about like, um, you know, that the life is 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 banal, but it's actually really wonderful, and you have to like embrace the the beauty of the banality. I mean, like it's that was like really in the. I don't know if that's just in, uh, my impression, but I, my impression is very much that that was very in the water for whatever reason in the two thousands, and then like in the twenty tens, it sort of fizzled out as i guess as as we started to to, to to you know get into a more chaotic sort of cultural moment where all of a sudden the stakes seem kind of high again but there's kind of this like post 90s thing of like oh we live in this corporatized world but like you know the, the office really is i think a great example because it's like you know you have this banal job but like you know what really matters is like love and friendship and all of this which I don't mean to be too dismissive of it, but like I really do think it. Yeah, it's neo sincerity. It's it's almost that trite. Um, but Again, I yeah, go on. About no, no, I don't. I don't want to interrupt you, but I've, I've never really tried to trace Wallace's influence on other other mediums. Um, but yeah, we well, want to talk about Wallace, so let's talk. We do, and I'm just gonna say one last thing about the office. Another thing about like this is, I mean, one obviously the aesthetic is neo sincere, like that's obvious enough. But like indeed, John Krasinski, who um, you know, incidentally also made the Quiet Place movie, which you have another good video essay about, but not even to touch on that. John Krasinski uh, and and I think B.J. Novak and I think some of the other creators of The Office did cite Wallace as an influence. So uh, it's not yeah. not mere speculation. I think that the, that connection is there. But on, on the David Foster Wallace note, um, Dan and I, I think saw on Twitter yesterday that you were potentially looking to do a stream on Wallace, which maybe we could still do down the line. But yeah. Um, yeah. I, Dan and I have been talking about potentially doing an episode on, on DFW uh, for a while. I think oh, that, yeah. you know, the general sense with Wallace is he, he you know, around the time, a few years after his suicide, uh, he became sort of beatified in the culture. Um, and people always looked at that uh, Kenyan college um, commencement address. This is water. Yeah. This is water uh, where, you know, he lays out kind of what we're talking about at the office, a very neo-sincere type of message uh, and but then shortly after that um he kind of there, there was this reaction to his beatification um from across the political spectrum i mean I, I i always had a very influential moment in my like personal development as a reader and as a writer was reading brett easton ellis's takedown of less a takedown of wallace more a takedown of um the end of the tour that that very neo-sincere mm -hmm. uh movie that was made about him and basically just taking down the kind of cult of the nice guy surrounding him. That had an influence on me. I don't remember if I've talked about that. I think I've talked about it on like another podcast. But basically, I was a really big David Foster Wallace fan in high school. I, I was kind of one of those David Foster Wallace lit bros. Uh, hate to admit now, but that's where I was at like 17, 18. And then I, I read that that Ellis you know piece on well on the on the on the end of the tour movie, and then it kind of made me reconsider how much of a sort of basically how much I'd bought into neo-sincerity as a sort of aesthetic. Um, and that, you know, subsequently influenced my reading and writing going forward. Um, but it's not just the Brady Stanellis of the world and, 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 and not that Brady Stanellis is necessarily right wing, but 
a lot of sort of people in our sphere would have a similar critique of, of Wallace that he's essentially a neo sincere weenie and overrated and pretentious. Yeah, is he? Been, uh, but also, is he gone? Cringed. Give me the like. Give me the the dirt. You consider him based or cringe? Now. Oh, you're asking me. Yeah. Um, I am going to deter the question because I actually, you know, I'm going to deter the question because I want to give a, a little more background, but also because I, I don't, I haven't completely made up my mind. Um, but I'll offer opinion one sec. The other thing I was say, he's also obviously very much rejected by the left. And I remember there was, there was a meme sort of towards the end of, uh, my time in college where it was like, uh, or not even a meme, uh, but like a Buzzfeed article, you know, to, to all the men who've recommended David Foster Wallace to me, like he was basically... Um, villainized as like the the peak like cis het you know white male writer i'm not, I'm not aware of this. this is interesting i didn't know about the left's rejection of him oh you didn't okay well I mean, uh, then i then i feel then i feel more validated in deterring my opinion to give more of this background it actually um there was a movie a pretty terrible movie that came out last year um called promising young woman which I don't want to get another sidetrack explaining what happens in that movie uh kind of a train wreck feminist um pseudo horror movie uh which went right up your alley to... yeah what's that we haven't seen it yet maybe we can do a film review on it oh yeah if you, if you uh -huh. watch it i think you'd have a lot to say but it's it's like actively hard to watch but anyway there was someone they made reference to david foster wallace as a problematic writer even in that and that was from last year so the, the you know this this idea of him as like a problematic um cishet white male writer with a bunch of problematic beta fans is still very operative um, so we rejected from both sides. Uh, do I think David Foster Wallace is cringed or based? Haven't, I don't have my like five point essay on why he's based, but I lean towards defending Wallace. Um, just the, I'd have to, I think I'd have to reread some of it to, to come up with more of an opinion. Um, but I mean, he's a masterful writer. He's not everyone's cup of tea. But he is he is a masterful writer, and, and um, you know, reading the the reason I liked his work in high school uh, is because he really got you into the skin of his very sort of socially anxious and self conscious protagonist, and his mere ability to do that um, is it based? I don't know. You know, may, maybe okay, maybe this will be my my um, you know sort of non committal answer. Politically, he's probably a little cringe. He's kind of in that. Um, gen x tier like not really willing to fully take a side kind of thing but as a writer um he's i think he's great and i think that people short sell him for that mm -hmm. but sorry hopefully i'm not rambling too much here what is what is your take um, yeah. Ian, what's your what's your take on him so i more or less echo matt here in that i would have to go back and re it's been years since i've read it and I've read I read his work during my pre-based era when I was a shit lib like everyone else, and uh, or not like everyone else but like many people. And as a result, like I'm I'm not confident he was based. In fact, I think he probably as politically was quite cringe because everyone had to be to get published, really. <laughs> and, like, he is maybe based by today's standards, because Matt was talking about people on the left trying to cancel him. But, I mean, that's really, he was just based to the extent he was writing honestly about being a straight man. And that is something that even just doing that, like, if you read, and we talked about this a little bit in the pod with uh, the editor of Expat Press, Manuel, Manuel Guerrero, um, if you even write honestly about being a straight man, 
you're, you're just going to catch a lot of heat and, you know, people are going to say you're, you know, um, misogynistic or, or whatever. And like that is, he's not based because he was writing honestly about being a, a straight man. It's just like, that's like what you should be doing. So like in a, in a sense, like if we were to transport him to today, yeah, I, I, I guess politically he might be considered, writing might be considered kind of based because it wasn't this kind of cringing uh, writing that you have today where like, you know, straight men are writing fiction, which is like already a, you know, a preemptive apology for, you know, what they're about to write about. And when it comes to his technical ability, though, now I don't think that is something that is really based or cringe. It's just a matter of like, you know, it's, it is based to be good at things. Sure. And he's, just a phenomenal writer he's you know like in my opinion one of the best writers i've ever read and his ability to get into the minds of characters is just astounding to to articulate not just thoughts but like thoughts within thoughts within thoughts and motivations and it's just it's you know it's really like it's the type of book his books like i remember interviews with hideous men collection of the short stories oblivion i must admit i haven't read infinite jest uh -huh. so uh, i i spared myself that but um yeah it's the type of thing as a writer as i'm reading it i'm like fuck i hate you <laughs> I, I, I hate to do this <laughs> yeah yeah my um I, it's interesting to hear you guys both both talk about him because i i mean uh, i guess i'm coming at it for i have not i've read a lot of his short fiction. I think I've read the majority of his, his nonfiction. I've definitely read all of his, his literary criticism, um, his big, um, his big kind of essays, um, E Unibus Plurum and um, uh, Westward Ho, where he kind of, that's his, I guess, I guess meta-analysis of, um, of Western lit and where, where it's going and where it needs to go. But um, I did read Infinite Jest. Mm -hmm. I read Infinite uh -huh. Jest in my 20s. And I guess that's probably what where I'm coming from, what gives me my, what makes me scratch my head about the guy. I was on it like, cause I, I honestly, like I, I thought about trying to do like a summer course on him or do, do a reread of infinite Jest, but I don't want like, if I turn out not to like the man, like, or, or I guess it, it, upon rereading him, if I just found that to be not worth it, I, I hate the, I, like, you know, the, his death was very tragic. I don't want to be the guy who just sort of, you know, mocks, <laughs> mocks his legacy. Um, yeah. So I don't know if it's worth the investment, but I, I mean, I'm sure you guys are familiar with Infinite Jest, or at least the premise of Infinite yeah. Jest. And this is what kind of problem problematizes for me his entire notion of the new sincerity. Because, uh, and that's not to say I don't I don't understand what you guys are saying with, I guess, you know the sentimentality and the, the, I guess, the vulnerable emotionality of, of a show like The Office. But I mean, really quickly, I mean, so Infinite Jest is a, a gravity's rainbow sized tomb. And if anybody knows anything about it, they, the, what, the only thing people hear about it is the footnotes because there are footnotes yeah. that are, it's sort of like a zero HP Lovecraft tweet if they were all 80 pages. Cause you can, you can flip to a, you can flip to a footnote and the footnote winds up being a novella. And then you have to go back to your, your page. And it's sort of, um, 
I think another thing people have commented on it is that it's sort of um, pre pre it anticipated and predated like tabs on your browser. Yeah. Like you feel like you've got 80 tabs open when you're reading DFW, but mm-hmm. you probably have five bookmarks. You've got one for the page you had to leave when you began a footnote that you thought was just going to be whatever. And it just turned. I read it on, uh, I read it on Kindle, which was a good choice, but oh. <laughs> continue. <laughs> But I mean, but other than sort of the stylistic elements and it's, you know, it's very like, like dense kind of stream of consciousness, thoughts leading into thoughts, sentences going on for, for quite a while. Um, the premise is basically that, you know, it's, it's the near future in America where like uh, Mexico, America and Canada have formed like a mass super state and they have collectively decided to make Quebec the dumping ground for all of their like nuclear waste. Mm-hmm. So there are these trebuchets that get described as like launching all of this stuff into Quebec, which has created a bunch of Quebecois terrorist cells, all of whom are attempting to apprehend a movie called Infinite Jest. And the infinite like the movie Infinite Jest is a movie that is apparently. Uh, so entertaining that if you watch it, you just continue to watch it until you die. It's like The Ring, except you just you just watch it on loop until you die. And it was it was directed by a, a man named James Incandenza, who also runs a New England tennis academy. <laughs> because David Foster Wallace is a tennis fan. Yeah. And so, um, and he has three three sons he's died he's committed suicide and he has three sons who are loosely based off of the he, he cooked his head right or something he microwaved his head he microwaved his head it's not- <laughs> so i'm just like fondly remembering the plot now it's been a while but go on and i would say like at least half of the footnotes are descriptions of james incandenza's movies which are all <laughs> sort of like veiled homages to david foster wallace's taste in movies um and certain directors. Um, so you learn about his entire film catalog throughout the, the 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 thing. And the other part of it takes place in a halfway house. And you have a character who's the, the most deadly and feared members of uh, a Quebecois terrorist cell are part of um, what's known as the wheelchair assassins, uh, Les Assons uh, de Roland de Fauteuil, as I recall. And they are because the only way you can make it into their organization is if you lie down on a train track and basically play chicken with a train and the, the game of the next train. Yeah. They're brave enough. I'm surprised. Yeah. Take their wheels. But despite the fact that they're all in wheelchairs, they're the most adept live ninja like assassins. So there's these absurdist elements of it, but sorry, but I guess no, And but half of it also takes place at a halfway house in Boston near the tennis Academy with all of these, um, adult drug addicts. And, um, that, all that to be, being said, nothing happens in the book. <laughs> nothing, absolutely nothing happens. Like you, you'd think you you just described a kind of wacky screwball adventure, but there's next to nothing. There's no. Um, I mean, you can kind of piece it together what happens, but all of the the action that may or may not have happened is alluded to. You you, you would it, it, it's it would be an effort the, on par with James Joyce's Ulysses to actually yeah. the plot of the movie. And I'd even heard people say things like, um, I heard, I heard some interview with Wallace where he said, like, well, the structure of the story is, is based on us, the Serpinski gasket, which is some sort of like obscure esoteric engineering mechanism 
Um, uh, <laughs> this, God. Yeah. this does not infinite jest and much of Wallace's work has never struck me as a man who's not concerned with how clever he is. And yeah. for a man who spent much of his time and much of his nonfiction um, berating sort of um, postmodern 60s era, what he calls the sort of post-Nabokovian generation of, um, of writers, this is certainly not any kind of return to realism. Um, and there's certainly plenty of, I guess, deliberate um, mazes that he, that, he, that he sets forward for his reader. And I, ironically enough, because I, I've just never been able to square his writing on new sincerity with infinite jest, because it's not like the guy wrote um, a 19th century novel. And, and, and quite frankly, and this is a, a, it's ironic because this is an, a, a writer who is um, absolutely cringe, although I bear him a grudging respect. Every time I read Wallace's um, literary theory or literary criti criticism, it sounds like he's talking about Jonathan Franzen. And apparently oh. the guys were real, like they, they kind of frenemies. They had, I guess, a bit of a rivalry. They both, yeah. they were, they were friends, but they, um, they didn't see eye to eye on, on fiction. And, um, uh, you know, a point that he, he wrote a, a piece after, um, Wallace died. And I think one of the more biting things he said was like, you know, it's interesting to hear you feel like he, he writes an occasion like a, like a, 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 a heterosexual man because I can't, again, I have not read all of Oblivion. It's been a, sometimes since I read him, but he, Franzen said, you know, why is, why did he never once write about two people being in love? Yeah. I can't honestly like, and, and the irony there is there, there's a biography out of him now, out, out of him called, I think the title is like, every love story is a ghost story. It's a ghost story. Yeah. Well, well, Dave, you never wrote a, you never wrote a love story. Like you did. Right. And I, no, that, this is my yeah. last point I'll make. This is my last observation. And this is going to, this is going to be what cancels me. This will be the moment that cancels me. John. Uh -huh. Because I read, and I'm, I, I hope I get this right, but I, I know that he had, I guess, an off again, on again relationship with um, a, a poet, a woman, who I guess. Mary Carr. Yeah. You know, like I think the pea goat, the prettiest girl of all time. Yes. This quasi character, Madam Psychosis in the book. <laughs> Um, which is an allusion to metempsychosis, which is an allusion to, J to James Joyce's Ulysses, but this is the new sincerity, everybody. Don't worry, you don't have to, like, pick up on seven, anal uh. seven an an like, analogs into this text. But I heard, like, I, I read somewhere, and maybe I'm getting the details wrong, but, like, he was, I guess, cruel enough to her that at some point he yeah. tossed her out of a moving car or something like that. Yeah, something fucking terrible. But to be the honest, the guy was like, "That's that makes me like David Foster Wallace a little bit more because he actually sounds like something other than a brain in a jar." Like, right? That, that's that was the most the... visceral, like, like passionate thing that I'd ever heard about the man, and I didn't think he was capable of it. No, that was um basically. Don't throw in so many words, I think don't throw anyone out. Of no, of course not. But there, there's a life there. That's what gets, yeah, that's what's wrong with his legacy, sort of, is, like, he's become seen as this great neo-sincere um, sort of Buddhistic saint figure, whereas he was very, like, uh, you know, it's the same, you know, the, the reason some, some obviously, the, the feminist critiques of him sort of dug this up, that he was 
basically an asshole with the temper. And that was basically um, the Brett, Brett Easton Ellis's point of what was wrong with the, um, the movie about him and, and also just what's kind of wrong with... I mean, he was critical of Wallace himself, uh, not to speak ill of the dead, but nevertheless. Uh, and he basically said almost exactly that, that Wallace... And he had maybe crossed paths with him once or twice in the 90s or something. And that basically... There was a more interesting version of David Foster Wallace that was very problematic. That you know that, that said that, that not not even just in his personal life in which he was you know had, there's all these stories, but also things he used to write um, quotes like you know you know AIDS's gift to us is that it reminds us that that sex is anything but casual. I believe that's a David Foster Wallace quote that you won't find. Um, he also to to bring in the politics of it, he he was a Reagan supporter. Like that he's kind of ambiguous, like politically ambiguous. Uh, not that I think there's anything wrong with being a Reagan supporter per se, but um, you know, it's not the David Foster Wallace that we've come to know, but basically, Matt, uh, can, you, can you square the circle of this, his sort of advocacy for this new sincerity and a, like a tomb, a daunting, like tomb, like infinite jest. I mean, do, like, and yeah. feel free to tell me if you feel like I'm, I'm, I'm reading it wrong because I'm afraid that I am. No, but like I, I don't, I don't, uh, I, I don't think of this as like a a defense of of DFW here because again I, I'd have to do kind of more of my rereading to say like oh this is why like he's actually like I, that's not really what I'm trying to do here but I think I hear what you're saying uh, and I, I think it's a very valid critique of the man and of his definitely of his legacy and, and of his work. Um, and I think the tension you describe between the the pretension and the the dense just the denseness uh, of infinite jest with the neo sincerity, yeah, those things are very out of whack. A couple ways I would square that circle if it even needs to be done is one, I think that he wrote um, infinite jest maybe before most of these other sort of neo sincere type opinions. I, I think there's something to that. Um, kind of when you were describing the plot of infinite jest right now, I hadn't really thought of it. Of it in these terms previously, but it was very obvious. Anybody. Like obviously, that book, um, he was putting all of himself and all of his biography into that. He was a drug addict. He was a tennis player. He was a cinephile. You know, obviously a writer. It was that all-in mindset. I think for Infinite Jest, I think we have is a book that sort of just he was. Um, I mean, one criticism I remember, one famous criticism of his, like, it appears the writer of this book just put anything that was on his mind down. And I think there is an element of, uh, of that to it. Um, I think it's kind of interesting. Um, but I think I, 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 that's the way I, that, my understanding of it would be, you know, that was, that, that he put all of himself in that book and all the neo-sincere stuff was kind of him later sort of trying to justify himself as a writer. Yeah. Um, I mean, I so that's kind of how yeah. myself talk. I, I don't, I don't mean to imply, or I don't really, I, it's not that a book can be structurally experimental and still be, it can certainly be that and still have a sincerity to it. Um, so I don't, I don't think that they are, they're mutually exclusive. Um, but, but yeah, I, I just, I, I don't think that, I, I don't know what percentage of that book I would, I would, articulate as as sincere and it is strange I, I like i found this true in most of his short stories um everybody does seem very there's almost no dialogue between two people yeah everybody is very atomized you get into everybody's head but very very seldomly 
do two characters actually collide? Whether that's a, like a man or a woman, yeah, or a friendship. He does not really wind up ever um, uh, illustrating human relationships, and I guess that's part of the point of Infinite Jest. People are all yeah lonely, but. I think, yeah, gosh. I mean, I think you bring up a really good point. I mean, that is what interests me about David Foster Wallace is his ability to um, describe that feeling of social isolation, which is why, even though I think David Foster Wallace thought he was writing for, a lot of people would say like, oh, like he's kind of, I think he's broadly perceived as more of a writer you'd read in your 20s than in your teens. But for me, he was the perfect writer to read my teens because I was... I, I was a very, like, sort of isolated, like, mopey uh, teenager, you know, narcissistic in my way. And, yeah, I think David Foster Wallace was pretty narcissistic. And I think that his his strength as a writer was simply in his – it's quite sad. I think his real strength was in his ability to channel his own sort of brokenness, his own sort of narcissism, his own isolation so fucking well in his novels that when you read them – if you deal, and I guess we all do deal with that to some degree. I did much more as a teenager than than I do now, thankfully. Uh, it makes you feel less lonely when you read it. And that, this is the stuff that he said about his own work and about the way he appreciated literature. So I think it's like I'm in, I, I, I like David Foster Wallace a lot, but kind of just for like that one thing that his his his, his writing is this testament to a. You know, he always would say, you know, frequent David Foster Wallace quote, I think it's even in that Kenyan address, the mind is a wonderful servant but a terrible master. I mean, you you feel him struggling with that so keenly in all of his work, maybe less so the nonfiction, but definitely in the fiction. And, and that's what I appreciate. But, um, and I actually, you know, John Franzen, politically very cringe, I enjoy his novels. And I enjoy Franzen's novels in the way that I enjoy most literature. Like David Foster Wallace is like, he's like this one note thing of, of the isolated protagonist that you feel so keenly, but he's not that writer like Jonathan Franzen or like most of the other writers that I enjoy um, where they are describing a more broad swath of the I, I, experience. I, I, I do think this is me, my, my original um, observation. And I don't think I, I think that they, both of them, consider themselves to be the, the like the Tolstoy and the Dostoevsky. But you hear Tolstoy being described as the the vertical genius, and Dostoevsky as, the, or sorry, um, Tolstoy as the the horizontal genius, as this kind of linear, temporal genius because he's amazing at weaving through different characters and these timelines. Whereas Dostoevsky is this vertical genius because he just goes kind of straight down yeah the human psyche and i think franzen is a bit more of a um tolstoyan and does yeah well, that's that's a very good comparison yeah i think yeah and i mean i think franzen's like the scott like freedom was you know like if if i can get over like the democrat scoffing at all the republican characters like the ambition and the scope of the book was like that is a 19th century novel yeah and it's very, very hard grim. to find anybody with the but yeah but stylistically impressive right for that yeah yeah i think with regard to uh i'm, I'm not sure to what extent uh dfw is or isn't sincere but with regard to the you know the irony in his work i mean i think we we all know that irony sometimes does hide a or or is used as a tool to convey a greater sincerity 
And like you, I think you could see that in some of his writing that like, despite the fact it's like deeply ironic, like especially one story that comes to mind is in Oblivion. It's a story about a man who kind of, I think it's called Neon, who lost his world to live. Oh, that's one of my favorite ones. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so he just starts like trying to figure out a way to, uh, you know, kind of find a world to live. And so he starts sleeping with different women every night, doing other stuff that he thinks will make him, you know, feel alive. And none of it does. And he eventually does kill himself. And uh, this, this all, like, the way it's written, like, it, it is not really written in a sincere fashion. Like, no one is really that kind of, like, vapid, that kind of he's almost like a Welbeck character mm. but uh, so, so there is an element of irony I think but I think a, a story like that that was very sincere because I mean I'm sure you know it tracked his own you know beliefs about the meaninglessness of life mm. and of, of course pre, you know uh, presaged his own ultimate suicide mm. I'm surprised that he I mean do you guys consider him to be any of that the the loneliness and the enemy and as well as the kind of formal level of the, the footnotes and the brown I'm surprised people don't at least I don't observe him getting more credit nowadays for kind of being the the prophet of the internet era um you know yeah I I don't hear people saying that but that was another thing I wanted to say in terms of the, is he based is he cringe debate which again is kind of you know a little bit of both perhaps but I do think that he's there's you know a, a lot of times you know certain a lot of times when someone has like a, a legacy that kind of gets the better of them uh, there's kind of peaks and troughs to the way that legacy is uh, is perceived and definitely he had a high peak right after he died or like a few years after he died and, and then it just went so low with everyone having you know stuff to negative stuff to say I think in the long run um, he'll be appreciated. Uh, for for a number of reasons, including what you just said, uh, that um, that his style uh, encapsulates a sort or press, you know kind of prefaces a little bit uh, the internet age and, and and all of that. I, I think in the long run, sort of stylistically, uh, you know, his legacy will will focus back on things like that. You know, what what he meant to a time and a place, yeah. um, and how he encapsulated it. People say this a lot of like. Christopher Hitchens, if like there's one human being you could bring back to life just to see how he would react to like the madness of today, yeah. I, I feel exactly the same of David Foster Wallace. Like, what would he make of, of right? Oh, and I do what he make of what has happened to his beloved cinema. Like, what, yeah. what the hell? Hitchens, I, I know what he would say. I, I think <laughs> I don't think it's very hard to imagine what Hitchens would say. Yeah. But uh, Wallace, like that, that might be very interesting. It I, is interesting. I don't and know. I, I think it brings up the based and cringe debate a little bit because I, uh, I don't even know, but like I think that th- most likely uh, David Foster Wallace would be a little bit like Jonathan Franzen is now, uh, sort of an alarmist person, maybe not as far left as Franzen, who is quite leftist, but you know, an alarmist, you know, the, the anti-style, you know, an alarmist sort of anti-Trumpist, like the Republicans want to bring everything to shit sort of character. But I think there is a possibility 
that that he would have gotten red pilled. That, that's pretty it's cringe like to say. But you written about what's that? You made a made a great book about 4chan or something, you know? Yeah, I yeah. I think that I, it's probably unlikely and it's probably cringe for me to even suggest it. I just think that put it this way, not that I endorse him throwing um, Mary Carr out of a uh, a moving vehicle, um, but he had that angrier sort of darker sort of willing oh, yeah. to, All I'm to transgress to a, side i was the only indication that the man had a pulse <laughs> oh yeah I, he and he did have a pulse so that's my point like there there is i think that distinct possibility that he would have sort of gone off the reservation a little bit and and been like actually you know not necessarily like in supporting trump the way he supported reagan but like you know not being willing to uh, go along with with the bullshit uh, of like the center left and establishment. I, I think there is that possibility with him um, yeah. because, because he was really smart as he, you know, loved to show off and he did have that pull. So I think he's a little more of a wild card in that regard. Yeah. Like Hitchens, I feel confident he'd just be your standard IDW guy, but uh, DFW, DFW, I, you know, he could be anywhere on the spectrum. I think. I think so. It'd be great to see him on Alex Jones. Can you picture that interview? I mean, I think you you could potentially to tell you the truth. DFW or Hitchens? Uh, not Hitchens. No, no. Yeah. Hitchens, <laughs> yeah. Solid IDW. Both, both would be yeah. really entertaining. But, um. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like you could almost DFW. This is a maybe. This is further cringe, or maybe there's something to this. He's like um, a little bit like how Kanye West is like entirely unpredictable. <laughs> you yeah. could almost and, and also mentally ill. You know. Yeah. <laughs> David Foster Wallace, unpredictable and mentally ill. You could almost imagine him like being being uh, the sort of Kanye West figure for for lit bros or something. I've heard her, but anyway, um, go on. Sorry, I don't mean that we can wrap up DFW, but um, I've heard him. Um, I think it was Dave the Distributist who kind of compared him to a, a Kurt Cobain figure. Um, oh yeah, it's. I think it's easy to to see the comparisons, but um, you know, I, I've I've heard. Um, People also talk about Kurt Cobain as sort of the last rock star. And I wonder if there's any analogy or anything read worth pulling there about David Foster Wallace as kind of the last novelist in some respect. Mm-hmm. I, not to say, and I don't mean, I mean, you guys are novelists. I hope that we... That no, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Let's see it on the ground, but in terms of sort of a, a larger-than-life, iconic... Um, you know, and you, I think you mentioned earlier, Matt, there was supposed to be this, he was supposed to usher in this new generation of, you know, Wallacean um, writers. And I mean, you mentioned, I think, Jonathan Saffron, Fo- or Dave Eggers. Yeah, Saffron. but Saffron Power as well, for sure. Yeah. Like there are probably a lot of people that wound up writing for television that um, were, were Wallace bros, but I can't say that I, you know, I've encountered books with, you know, insane footnotes or kind of Wallace edge to them. And, and I, I don't really think there's anybody that's taken that mantle. So is, is, I don't know, do you, is, is he in some way the last real? I, I think so. A little bit like, um, I, what was the term you used earlier? How, how there's like this extinction burst that was kind of encapsulated by once upon a time in Hollywood. There, there, there is, I think a little bit of that sense about Wallace, like a maximalist, sort of uh the last like cis het white well, that's, that's it. the <laughs> yeah. last cis 
pet, uh, you know, but not the less, not, not the less larger than life novelists. Like people are now are talking about Sally Rooney and probably other people who I don't know the names of and don't want to know about. And, yeah. that, you know, it continues just without us. And right. that, I think that's the, that's the real black pill or white pill because we're, you know, the next big novelist, you know, maybe America is not going to have like the novelist for America because we're like five or six different Americas. So yeah, yeah maybe, uh, you know, zero HP becomes our, our big novelist or delicious tacos or or um uh matt here and there we go <laughs> yeah. well i appreciate that dan uh yeah. but yeah no we that is uh that is a bit of a transition i i don't really have i don't even necessarily want uh, to be anything that <laughs> but uh last things you did read dragon day um which i appreciate um as are pretty much all of our listeners know dragon day is my novel which i published with terror house last year um i I'm not just going to, I'm not going to ask you like, Oh, did you like it? Cause then you're going to feel like you have to say you liked it, but uh... <laughs> I, did. I, I, I did, man. I, I, I enjoyed it. And uh, I mean, I shared with you before I, I even read it, I just kind of read the, um, the boilerplate description and I realized that the, um, the main, I guess the main setting and the main subject and theme throughout the book is, um, uh, you know, elite colleges in America, which is a pet, that subject right as being a veteran of one um Mm -hmm. but i I, you know i was wondering matt maybe i'm switching around the interviewer hat here to no totally yeah um i i don't could you i guess try and provide whatever level of summary or description of your book that you you would like to because i don't i certainly don't want to provide any spoilers but Oh yeah, maybe this is um, something you're used to doing. Just giving kind of a. Oh yeah, I'm definitely, I'm definitely, definitely used to doing it. Um, the novel is about a uh, troubled young college freshman who, uh, very isolated college freshman, uh, who falls under the wing of a professor with dangerous ideas. Um, basically, uh, yeah, the main character is a 19 uh, year old college student named Toby. Um, when we first meet him, he is in a very isolated and sort of self-conscious frame of mind, which I'll comment on in a second, and uh, doesn't have very many friends. He's just started and he kind of falls under the wing of this professor with ostensibly very sort of Marxist, post-structuralist, leftoid, Deridian kinds of ideas, a very, you know, um, young and, uh, and charismatic English professor. Um, and then uh, slowly, uh, a young and charismatic English professor who's kind of seen as a leader of sort of radical um, 2015 style campus politics. Uh, but slowly he sort of indoctrinates Toby, the main character, into, um, into a sort of underground secret teaching he has uh, to a very select few students, um, sort of like in the novel Secret History. Uh mm-hmm. Not exactly like that, but thought, vaguely like that. Donatard a little bit, yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely it was an influence. But uh, but basically, he secretly has sort of, uh, I would say like alt right sort of ideas, but uh, not not like dissident right third way type ideas per se. Although that might be part of it, like a very sort of unhinged version of that. And this sort of incel type protagonist sort of falls under his influence, and things get worse from there is how I'd sum up the novel. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And um, yeah. And I, I, much of it has to do with, um, I guess, when you start out, you do just, I guess, consider this professor to be a bit of a um, left toy. He gets, um, he has his students um, uh, manage to get sort of a medievalist fired <laughs> for triggering. Yeah. Figuring a student. Um, it's funny. I, you know, I missed, um, I, you know, I graduated from 2000 in 2005 from college. So I, but I, I always was, I kind of missed, uh, <laughs> I came, mm-hmm. I, I graduated too early before a lot of campuses went completely in, insane. And I, I can only imagine what my alma mater is like. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. But is this, um, is this a novel that you started when you were an undergraduate or is this? Yes. I assume very much, you know, the secret, um, the, I guess the, the eventual ideological, um, uh, nature of this, this charismatic, charismatic professor. I'm imagining that's not something that's lived experience. And if it is, don't tell me because I want Iranian based dissident professors to continue to operate. But um, uh-huh. is a lot of that, I guess, drawn from your um, your uh, exasperation and disgust with a campus culture that you you had to live through yourself? <laughs> For sure. Yeah. No. I've um, I'm not proud of this fact because the book is only about 150 pages. But I did write it on and off for like seven friggin' years before I was finally able to finish and publish it. Um, and. Uh, I mean, th- to answer your question very much, it, most of it was written, um, what, most of like the first part of it anyway was written um, when I was an undergraduate and, and, and was very much based off of yeah, my exasperation with the, um, the campus culture uh, of 2015. The novel's set in 2015. I purposely wanted to set it before Trump, before things went Sure. sort of really crazy back when when that those kind of campus politics were, were still ascendant um I, yeah i started writing it when i was the age of the protagonist i started writing it when i was 19 mm-hmm. and i'm actually going to back up to a little it's, it's interesting because i don't even think about this so much very often but david foster wallace is on the brain um i think when i started writing it my goal i did i was still when i was a bit of a wallace bro and my goal was very much to capture that sort of self-conscious isolated type of Wallacean narrative it, for the years that I was mostly inter- influenced by Wallace it never got very far because I was never I just don't have I'm not, I'm not even gonna say I don't have that talent as a writer but I just I, I can't write the David Foster Wallace novel I like the idea of writing the isolated character but any kind of narrative thing Wallace wasn't doing me any favors reading him so it's actually interesting when I when I kind of went through that thing where I read the Brett Easton Ellis critique uh, of Wallace, I think that's what really helped me as a writer because it helped me kind of move past Wallace. And, and you know, like Brett Easton Ellis is something of an influence, and I have X number of other influences. Like they, 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 they're a better example of how to just write a narrative, I think. But um, I guess I just because we were talking about him, I'll bring him up. Um, yeah, I do think writing an isolated protagonist like that was kind of the again my as i said i don't have that same kind of mentality now i'm a lot less sort of isolated and and self-absorbed but you know as a teenager i was very much that and kind of reading david foster wallace was sort of palliative and then when i first started writing as a 19 year old that's definitely like where i started thankfully anything else i write in the future i think will be will be different but you know that encapsulates like that um period of my life uh but 
moving on from there, yeah, I, w- I was. Uh, it's obviously not just about an isolated protagonist, but also there's this political angle, and, and that was all very much based on personal experience. I w- at the time, I guess you could say I was a bit of a shit lib, or trying to be, or trying to redeem myself for that kind of view. But I was basically like, uh, you know, sort of center right, center left kind of guy, and the extremes of what I was seeing on campus was very disturbing to me and I was trying to find my way of critiquing it some of it probably embarrassingly neo-sincere or just kind of cucked as we now say you know I was trying to like have my you know I I spent a lot of mental energy at at that age and even maybe it wasn't even in earlier drafts of the novel trying to like justify why I as a cis het straight um whatever else white male you know would have the right to you know, have these critiques and why maybe, you know, basically it was this jumbled thing that I think a lot of leftward um, sort of bookish uh, guys of, of my generation a bit and a bit older and a bit younger have gone through and are probably still going through where it's like they're, they're they want to be, you know, the nice liberal guy, but increasingly it's just impossible because they're so often targeted and they're, they're, they're so often, um, you know, uh, there's the supposition that below the surface they're actually just like you know another problematic white guy and becomes this this horrible thing and I, and some of that you know it's not unrelated to the to the isolation that I think my um, protagonist you know, not not unrelated to that David Foster Wallace style protagonist thing because there was a self consciousness to it I mean one of the whole things is uh and. Uh, one of the whole things is basically that that the main character is worried about his penis size like it's like this intense male fear of physical inadequacy um and he has this fear of uh of the way he's perceived on a social level and is he perceived as you know uh, this crippling self-consciousness and i think in some ways um the the political stuff played into that because i think I don't know, I don't want to sound too whiny about this, because again, it's not really the phase of life I'm in anymore. But I think in college, yeah, there, as an already kind of self-conscious guy, th- there is this sense of like, and there's this whole, it feels like there's a political agenda sort of against you. And that's constantly sort of picking at you, uh, you know, for being uh, a straight white male. I-, I think that is an experience that a lot of guys are having. And that's, that's some of where the novel came from. And then moving on to one of the other things, my novel, I don't consider the whole thing a satire. I think it's closer to psychological realism in parts, but there's satirical elements. And one of the things that I satire is um, basically absurdist, uh, not absurdist, like in the tradition of absurdism, but rather absurd, overreaching sort of Jacques Derrida literary theory stuff. And, and the, 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 the professor character has a system called literary philology, which holds that. Uh, and I, maybe that was a sort of Wallacean sort of conceit as well, that sort of thing, that sort of absurd plot element uh, basically the notion that you can from you can do perform close reading of any um of any male writer and deduce their penis size from their work uh <laughs> is this kind of absurd uh postmodern I agree. I agree theory that's theory. what's that i agree with that theory i think I... <laughs> yeah no 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 for sure um you know there's obviously some kind of perhaps humorous truth to it not that it could ever be literally done um but i think that uh, i think that yeah i think that there probably there probably was a certain david foster wallace sort of element to, yeah, to that plot reminded device me, reminded me of, he had a sort of a certain hal incandenza um quality to him um 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, one thing I've noticed about a lot of people on on the dissident right is it's not entirely universal, but there is often this um, negative experience of college. And I know you're you know you're painting a, a, a portrait of a, an introvert um, and uh, you know a, a, a unique character, um, but. I, it's a story I've heard often. Um, I'm not even, I don't consider myself to be an introverted person, but I had a, a kind of a terrible, I, I hated college. And I think something that I know, mm. I notice often is this, um, I think Franzen actually writes about this well in freedom with the, um, the character that goes off to, to college. Um, it's something that gets built up in the imagination as, uh, you know, you're going to meet all of the best friends that you're ever going to have yeah you're going to um you know it's gonna all be a uh uh amazing hbo show about mm -hmm. life and the sexual liberation that you're gonna experience is um is un un unimaginable and um yeah i even went to i mean not i don't i'm not gonna do my best not to do mm -hmm. myself here but i, I went to a co college that had like a pretty a large percentage of uh women like the ratio of men to women was um was pretty significant and that you know as i was preparing to go to college all my friends were like hey hey you know that's that's it and i was yeah. just actually just missing the hell out of um male camaraderie and there was this i guess sort of just lack of vitality to the campus and i'm guessing that's how a lot of young men feel now yes regardless of the college of um you know i thought it would be this sort of you know uh, uh, I, I would, I would be experiencing some sort of harem situation, but, um, uh, get there. And, um, uh, I think most, like most people that are freshly at college are actually a lot more terrified of, of sex than they let on, even though there are usually mm -hmm. like, you know, themed bacchanalian parties and everybody presents this, um, this, uh, yeah. thought of, of kind of, uh, sexual freedom there's actually uh, it's I think it's a much more isolating and atomizing experience for a lot of people and I think that's oh I think so by the fact that everybody in your entire ecosystem has been telling you your whole life that this is supposed to be um, the best years of your life life yeah yeah and it was yeah no oh so much to, to, to dig into there <laughs> say that again sorry cut out for a second. i could i could empathize with with toby and i was not even taken under the wing of like a radical professor but yeah right i mean i should add i actually i mean i i had a really good time in college but like you know there 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 was that edge you know especially maybe freshman year or like when i first got there of like i guess adjusting and i, and I exaggerated it quite a bit thankfully it may uh some of the audience may be happy to know it's not that autobiographical a lot of it's very exaggerated you know my time in college was a lot better than toby's but but no um i appreciate you bringing that up because absolutely that um you know in so many ways it's it's a political novel but like the the root of it was emotional and again not to just keep saying this but i'm kind of just i hadn't thought about it in so long that it's sort of striking to me yeah like definitely was supposed to be that david foster wallace kind of protagonist where it's about this character's isolation and how he does or doesn't escape it um, and yeah, I appreciate you bringing the college thing up because that's that's very much uh, the, the 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 feelings that I first sought to write about. Later, it got into sort of politics and the state of the West and the problems with the progressive 
mainstream and, and you know satirizing um, postmodern theory. But at its core, what I wanted to write about, what I knew that I felt keenly enough to write a novel about, was you know that feeling of isolation or crippling self consciousness. I distinctly remember, not to get too personal or, or, or weepy here or anything, but like I distinctly remember being at a party in college and just not having a good time. Like it, I just wasn't yeah talking to anyone or whatever and i i remember thinking like i want to write a novel or a story or an, you know it ended up being like a novella about you know the the one guy at the college party who's not having a good time and in retrospect that sounds a little emo and, and whatever else but you know it's my it was my first novel <laughs> i wrote it when i was you know much younger than i am now and started writing it um and, and yeah that's very much you know so to anyone listening you know if, if if that sounds too emo, maybe the book's not for you. But like, if if you're interested in reading, you know, a novel about a, a sort of young and isolated protagonist, um, that's definitely you know the starting point of Dragon Day, and it, it becomes in time very political. Which just to finish my whole spiel about how the book came about, you know, basically I wrote that first part. I was still kind of a shitlib and didn't really know how to end it and basically it was after getting red pilled for lack of a better term that i was able to finally bring it to a close it felt like the natural ending um you know wallingford's whole secret uh agenda you know that was kind of added later and you know it's it's kind of like a two-part story it's like the, the isolation when i started reading it the wallingford who's this kind of radical rabble-rousing professor is still a, a heterosexual white male at least he's got a he's got a wife he's got a kid yeah the one parent um but he is the one that's trying to like you know oust other english faculty and and yeah stage student protests and i, I was scratching my head when i began to read that because i was like why is this character you know a blonde like a teutonic blonde guy maybe but i you know that gets i think further <laughs> further adumbrated as you read but yeah, sort of. I mean, I, on one hand, I'll say, like, it's probably not the most realistic thing in the world. I think that a lot of kind of woke campus people would know better than to than to have a figurehead like like Wallingford. Um, but I think, you know, the way I'd explain it in the context of the book is that this is just a very charismatic guy um, and has this kind of, yeah, strange power over people. Uh, yeah. is basically what I think it ends up being. But I, yeah, it is a little, I mean, I'm not, I don't mean this as a criticism of my own book, but definitely that's kind of a, perhaps a stumbling block is that in real life, I think you'd have a hard time having such a figurehead who's, yeah, basically Teutonic in appearance. I mean, I'll just come out and say this. I, by the time, it, by the end of the book, I, I'm not saying he's based on Richard Spencer, but I definitely you know, was imagining I, someone who I, looked I a bit like that. I visualize like a Richard Spencer character when he I'm... definitely has that charisma that's that's the type of personality um interesting interesting but yeah well thank you for thank you for reading it and um you know whenever i have another novel out it, it won't be another seven years before my next one and uh <laughs> man i have to i have to tell this story because it somewhat ties into um to dragon day or at least at least the subject matter again you know i graduated 2005 this isn't. I don't think this is gonna dox me. There was there was one mm-hmm. tiny ink, like one small inkling, of what was to come that happened to 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 my college when I was there. Like we had one one day. It was my senior year. All classes got canceled so that we could have sit-ins and discuss race relations for the day. Yeah. All all of the campus got shut down, and I can't. And I got. I should like. I cannot emphasize how lefty 
my college. Mm -hmm. Like I was the left of the left, whatever college you're thinking of, they think of my college and they're like, those guys are crazy. Forget that. <laughs> like, but, but the sit-in and this is all apocryphal. So this was all like, I'm, he I'm hearing this third hand um, from friend of a friend of a friend of a friend. So I may, I may get the details wrong, but apparently what like the catalyst for this whole day, where just basically the whole college got shut down was um, there was a, 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 bla a black female student at a party with a white male student who was from the South and they were talking and um, she, she bummed a cigarette off of him and he had like, he handed her the cigarette and you know, he lit it for her. And she said, Oh, well, thank you. Like what a fine Southern gentleman you are. And the student said, Oh, well, no, I'm just a gentleman. You know, if I was a Southern gentleman, we wouldn't be able to be hanging out or something like that. Like, which it's like a party quip. Which, yeah. Like, I think like, honestly, just probably like, yeah. Like, and what's funny about it is just, I, I mean, all of the people in my college who I'm sure if they, if you took the exact same human beings and you plopped them down into like 2015 would have crucified this guy, but you had all these people like sitting, like all of the professors had to run different, you know, I guess, I don't know, awareness seminars or it was, it was kind of ill-organized because you didn't have like Robin D'Angelo's yet. You didn't have like a cottage industry of how to run these workshops, but it was like, you know, the, the, the college was acting like somebody had, committed suicide and we all needed to have a day yeah. talk about it <laughs> even like the most sort of like like proto woke students were just like that's all he that's all he fucking said like <laughs> <laughs> they were all just like yeah but that's kind of funny or like he might have had a point or maybe he's just trying to say like you know it's great that we're at this college because now we get to like yeah hang out at a party and you know like i come from a part of the country where these uh, connections don't get made, but it, it, you know, and at the, but I just, I mentioned it because at the time mm -hmm. I was like, this is the dumbest. I, I was so ashamed to be at my college that, that we were having yeah. happen. And, and then like fast forward a decade, I'm watching, you know, some Yale undergraduate, you know, on YouTube scream at a, uh, <laughs> a professor. <laughs> yeah. But that was like, that was just like the first tumbleweed that was rolling by the road that was of, of that was the, the you know prelude of what was the, what was to come. Absolutely, yeah. No, again, you you know you you sum it up really well. Where I think there's this expectation, and again, I actually you know I college in some ways lived up to this expectation for me a lot of the time, but in other ways didn't, or maybe you know, and I think it's probably worse now than it was, especially because college is online half the time there's this sense like that that those are supposed to be the years of your life and like this sort of flowering of life even but and it's kind of in in this way where college is also a, a microcosm of of society at large um it very much feels like a, something that in many ways in so many ways has been frankly feminized and sapped of its vitality whether you know it's like yeah you said you you know go to college with a high um, percentage of women that's all colleges now because men are kind of not going to college at, at increasingly high rates and uh, you know it's supposed to be good because there's all these women but actually it's not actually you know you, you realize you're in, uh, in in a world that you know at one point was 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 sort of made for you as, as, a, as a young as a young man upcoming in society but it is no longer it's like you're no longer really wanted here
there's a feeling yeah of yeah I could, um, I could waiting around to like form my my manor bund and like after four years uh -huh. build this kind of like lone lone wolf and there was the, there it was just kind of like i wouldn't have been able to articulate it in probably until a decade later but it was just this kind of like feminine energy to it where there was right this lack of vitality um you know there was no like you know no sports teams no sort of themed houses no athletic events there was no sort of like um just uh, just geist just spirit there was it was a right very spiritually dead place so so imagine that and then throw into it you know you, you imagine imagine yourself in that and then a, a professor who secretly is jack donovan <laughs> or is secretly jack secretly jack murphy god for, that's, I shouldn't that's, say that. and now everything uh, yes. perfect description of your book that's basically you, you think you're dealing yeah. with a world professor and then it's like yeah yeah and and in that lack of uh in that lack of vitality in that lack of geist you know there's someone who is delivering the goods cryptically but also in a way that proves to be dangerous and i don't think it's going to happen but you know Lord knows, perhaps it could. You know that that there that there could be you know these kind of secret uh, maybe, maybe and they you know what my book is kind of a cautionary tale. My book, you know, I, I don't advocate what what Toby eventually does, or I don't advocate what Longford teaches. But um, but hell, maybe there's a maybe there's a decent version. Maybe maybe uh, if you're if you're in college right now, maybe maybe you know start a, a little secret society with your friends. I don't want to get in trouble for saying that, but you know there. Yeah, you do. You do kind of need that, right? You need that uh, that mannerbund feeling sometimes, and um, you know, it's kind of a little bit like what what we're doing right now on this podcast. You know, uh, building community online, and uh, I don't yeah. know if you're, if you're a young a young college guy listening to this. Um, you know, maybe maybe there's something there. <laughs> yeah. The rebuild. Yeah. From Passage Prize, which the the tagline is "Exit the Longhouse." Yeah, and I think that's very appropriate here. You know, we are trying as a culture to exit the longhouse. That's the project of New Right. That's, I think, to some extent, your project at Last Things. And, you know, that uh, your, your novel, Matt, Dragon Day, was in some sense about being in a culture that is, you know, feminized and that is, you know, not, uh, you know, vital for men and a man trying to find his way out of it and boy does he uh chart an interesting course <laughs> yeah yeah there's a lot there yeah, it's a very it's a very interesting read so i definitely um definitely advocate it um and it, yeah and it is thanks you know, it's a, yeah it's a short read but it's a it's a it's a really good one um people could probably get through it in, in a week um and do you have another one in the um in the works now matt uh, just, just ideas if I'm being honest, you know, uh, but, but uh, yeah, eventually hope, you know, I, this is it's probably overly ambitious to say this year, but, uh, I'm hoping, and it probably won't be like even as long, I might write a novella or, or even just some short stories, but, uh, you know, more fiction should be coming from me Awesome. in due time. Um, uh, but yeah, thanks so much for reading. And, uh, I mean, we're, uh, we're about hitting the two hour mark here, which would not be one of our longer episodes, but That's I think two hours is yeah. pretty solid. I think this has been a fantastic conversation um but we should probably wrap it up so i'll just say thanks so much for coming on last things and uh by the way you you yeah. you, you like to go by last things on these podcasts you know, right you guys started calling me lt just because i signed off on that one day and then i was like oh, i really like that i like, <laughs> like all right I, 
LT. It's very manageable. <laughs> yes, yeah. indeed. Um, so yeah, but I, I I do I go by by last things. Unfortunately, I'm I'm still like I'm still pseudonymous until we until we. Oh no no no, no that's that's fair. Oh yeah, that's no fair. Way. We're all pseudonymous here, yeah. more or less. Yeah. Um, well, it's been a, it's always a ton of fun talking to you guys. So um, let's definitely do it again. And let's do it again. Yeah. All right. Take care.